IndyCar fans, it's time to start your engines. Welcome to Pit Pass Indy, a production of Evergreen Podcast. I'm your host, Bruce Martin, a journalist who regularly covers the NTT IndyCar series. Our goal at Pit Pass Indy is to give racing fans an insider's view of the exciting world of the NTT IndyCar series in a fast-paced podcast featuring interviews with the biggest names in the sport. I bring nearly 40 years of experience covering IndyCar and NASCAR, working for such media brands as NBCSports.com, SI.com, ESPN Sports Ticker, Sports Illustrated, Auto Week, and Speed Sport. So let's drop the green flag on this episode of Pit Pass Indy. It's the month of May, the month that IndyCar fans live for. That means the Indianapolis 500 is here, featuring two full weeks of activity at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, culminating with the world's greatest race, the Indianapolis 500, on Memorial Day Sunday. This year's 105th Indianapolis 500 is scheduled for Sunday, May 30th. But action kicks off at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway Friday with practice and qualifications for Saturday's GMR Grand Prix on the IMS road course. Next Tuesday, practice begins for the Indy 500 with full days of on-track activity leading into Fast Friday, then first day qualifications on Saturday, May 22nd. The following day features the run for the Indy 500 pole in the annual Fast 9 shootout. Prior to that is bump day featuring the last row shootout as cars at the other end of the grid try to make the famed 33 car starting lineup. There have already been two races this May, however. Texas Motor Speedway hosted a doubleheader weekend with the Genesis 300 on Saturday night, May 1st, with Scott Dixon driving to another dominating victory for the second year in a row. On Sunday, 21-year-old Pato Award scored his first career IndyCar win in the Expel 375. Today's show, we'll take a look back at the Texas doubleheader. It was going to be the theme of last week's Pit Pass Indy, but with the passing of three-time Indianapolis 500 winning driver Bobby Unser at the age of 87, we created a tribute to one of the biggest names in Indy 500 history. Today's Pit Pass Indy is going to feature a post-race pit walk featuring some of the biggest stories that came out of the Genesis 300. Those include Scott McLaughlin's second-place finish in the rookie's first-ever start on an oval. Four-time Indianapolis 500 winner Rick Mears has been working with McLaughlin as a driver coach at Team Penske, and we check in with him. John Boslog calls the race strategy for McLaughlin, and he gives his thoughts from the pit area. We catch up with Graham Rahal after his fifth-place finish, followed by a chat with TK, the great Tony Kanaan, who returned to action driving the number 48 Bryant Heating and Cooling American Legion Honda for Chip Ganassi Racing. That car belongs to Jimmy Johnson on the street and road courses on the schedule. We wrap up with Team Penske's Will Power, who ran near the front before having an issue midway through the race and finished 14th. Scott McLaughlin, second place on an oval, your first oval start, and you're racing to the end against your hero, Scott Dixon. I mean, that's it's almost like a movie script. Yeah, man, I've never, uh, like I said, I've never been this happy second, you know, it's crazy. It's, uh, it's a really proud moment for me and my family. Um, it's been a big move across here. It's been uh, stressful at times and miss my mum and dad a lot and, and everyone. And um, 
you know, just just really proud to get it done, and, and um, you know, it's a uh, yeah, really, really crazy moment. You had your rookie test here last fall, and you've told me several times how well you adapted to this track. What is it about Texas Motor Speedway and your driving style that uh, works so well? Look, I think my my team really put me in the position. You know, PPG Chevy car was fast, but at the end of the day, you know, my team on that on that PPG pit wall was exceptional with where they put me and, and, and the calls they made. So really proud of everything, what they did. Um, we looked after the Firestones, and I'm pretty proud of that. How often had you dreamed of racing against Scott Dixon? <laughs> oh, a lot. I never thought I'd get the chance because I've been going a little bit like a busted ass lately. So I'm, I'm, I'm hoping I uh, you know, keep, can keep up there. But, um, look, I've got a long way to go. I know that. This is only one race, and you're only as good as your last. So we'll have a crack. And the next uh, oval, there's one tomorrow. But after that, the big one, the Indianapolis 500. And how excited are you heading into that? Uh, we're really pumped. You know, it's, uh, it's going to be a pretty special moment um, to head there for my first Indy 500. And... You know, hopefully we'll win better than today. <laughs> Scott McLaughlin, congratulations on your second place finish in the Genesis 300. Cheers, thank you. Four-time Indianapolis 500 winner Rick Mears. Scott McLaughlin, second time on an oval, and he finishes second to his idol, Scott Dixon. What is it about this type of racing and Scott McLaughlin that has meshed so well? Well, he, obviously he's just talented, very talented guy. You know, he just got a great feel for a car and uh, you know, knows what he wants in a car, and, and he's just he's good and smooth, and that's what you need to be on these speedways, and, and he loves ovals, he's found out. He really likes them, and you know, anytime you like something like that, you dig a little deeper, and he, he, just, he just did a hell of a job. He had his rookie test down here last fall, and he passed it very quickly and very easily, but you could just tell by the excitement level and the enthusiasm that he brings to this series. This kid's got some big potential in front of him. No, very, very much so. I mean, he's, he's got a lot of potential. And he's just learning. He's still got a lot to learn, and he's doing a hell of a job. So I think he's just going to keep going forward. Who was your idol when you came into IndyCar? Oh, you know, I, I, all, of the, all of the front guys. I mean, obviously, my dad was my first idol. Sure. But then uh, the first really professional driver I met was Parnelli in the off-road racing. So he was always one of my early heroes. But when you had a chance to battle them and say off-road racing or even an A.J. Foyt or anything in IndyCar, as a young Rick Mears, how exciting and how big a boost was that to you? You can probably relate a little bit to what Scott McLaughlin's going through right now. Oh, yeah, absolutely. That's how you measure yourself, you know, is who you're running against. And, you know, when I got to a point where I could run with, with A.J., with Mario, with the Enzers and those guys and John Cock and Rutherford, all of them, you know, as, as we got to running with them, it was just... It just, it's a great feeling. It's a real feather in your hat, so to speak, you know, and, and uh, to feel like you're competitive with those guys is, is a great feeling. And finally, there's no reason to expect more uh, from this kid at the Indianapolis 500. Oh, no, he, he, I think he's going to run well, you know. Like I said, he's still learning, he's, and, and uh, he's going to continue learning, and, and uh, we just got to get him and give him the right tools to do the job. Rick Mears, congratulations. Uh, working with Scott McLaughlin, and thank you for joining us. Thank you very much. John Boslog, race strategist for Scott McLaughlin. It's the kid's first race on an oval, and he finished his second to his hero, Scott Dixon. That's almost like storybook material. Yeah, I got to say, you know, the, we got a, a lot of credit to him because he's he's so excited about this right now, and he's he's so patient, and uh, he's really he just gets so, you know, pumped up about this. He loves IndyCar racing so much, and. 
really the Matt Johnson and the guys today, Jonathan is engineer and the timing stand, you know, that's, that's where the real strategy happens in the timing stand. So it's a huge effort for everybody. And uh, how we started out, uh, it's really good right now. He was a three-time Australian Supercars champion, but when he tested here last fall, he really took a knack to this oval. What is it about his driving style that fits so well at a place like Texas Motor Speedway tonight? I think I think he's the real deal. I mean, I think, you know, it's not easy to do this. It's not easy to drive these cars. And I think it's really a testament to his talent, honestly. I really do. And I think anybody you talk to would say the same thing. And you were away for a couple of years with the IMSA program, Acura Team Penske. Now you're back in IndyCar. How, how much at home do you feel now? Uh, I do. I, I always, you know, I always, I always like every project we do, but, you know, Obviously, Indy and IndyCar is near and dear to my heart, so it's great to be back. It's always great to have an opportunity when Roger gives it to you. John Boslog, race strategist for Scott McLaughlin. Congratulations on his second-place finish in the Genesis 300. Thanks a lot. Graham Rahal, another great race for you here at Texas Motor Speedway. May have been a little bit better had they been able to qualify earlier today. How much of a deficit did that kind of put some of the drivers that were fast to have to fight their way up uh, without having the ability to, to qualify? Well, it put us in a deficit, but I would also say that um, the first stop put us at a deficit. Getting caught out in that yellow really hurt us a lot. So, you know, I mean, uh, it is what it is, but uh, our guys did a great job. Fleet cost and care machine was fast. Honda motor, motor was humming along nicely. So, uh, you know, I was super pleased with it. Close call on the backstretch late in the race with Jack Harvey. I mean, what uh, what did you think of that? I mean, it's a dumb move. It's a really dumb move. I'm sure he knows it, but still, you know, going to have a little man-to-man -man talk with him. Um, I respect Jack a lot, so I'm not mad, but that's how you hurt somebody really badly, and that just needs to be, you know, it needs to be discussed. And finally, with the performance you had here tonight to be able to uh, enter the month of May later this month for the Indy 500, how pumped up and excited are you for the oval effort? No, I mean, we expect a lot out of this team on the ovals, no matter what. And Indianapolis, we, uh, we expect to be extremely strong. So I'm excited for that. I'm, I mean, this isn't even our good car. So hopefully uh, this is a good sign for us. Graham Brayhall, congratulations. Fifth place finish in the Genesis 300. Thank you for joining us. Thanks. Tony Kanaan, first race back in an IndyCar since August 30th, and apparently nothing slowed you down. You were the fastest today in practice, and then you were pretty fast in the race except for the six-gear issue. So how would you assess coming back here at Texas Motor Speedway? A great comeback. I mean, I, I, I can't thank Chip enough for all the effort, Bryant, uh, American Legion, all the sponsors, 7-Eleven, uh, NTT. I mean, this car was a rocket. Unfortunately, we had a little bit of a hiccup and a software issue that we could not pull six gears, so that cost us a lot of time. But what a car, man. I mean, look at Dixon winning the race. So a great effort. I mean, it felt like home. Uh, I can't forget to thank Jimmy Johnson for letting me drive his car. And I hope I didn't disappoint him uh, with uh, our Top 11, but uh, we'll try. We have another day tomorrow. I think we have a pretty decent car. Ho hopefully, we'll start a little bit up towards the front with the championship points, and we'll see what's going to happen. How were you able to fix the software issue? We had to re-power cycle the car, so I had to turn the car completely off, 
that is a procedure to do. And then bump started by myself, which it, it worked just fine. So. And then after that, you got into the top 10 and you were getting pretty racy. So how cool did it feel to be back in the top 10 running here at Texas Motor Speedway? Oh, it was awesome. Like I said, I mean, they gave me a great car and I had a lot of fun. When you have a good car, your life, it's so much easier. So uh, again, huge team effort. I mean, this is a brand new team that Chip put it together for us to run this 48 car, Jimmy and myself. And, uh, you know, we're, we had a great day. And how important is it to the team, at least on the ovals, to show this car is capable of running fast with the fast guys? It is really important, Bruce, but I think we did it. I mean, that, that right there set a statement right away. So I think if anybody had a doubt about it, that's over now. And Tony, the, uh, there's another race on Sunday, and then the big one, 150 Indianapolis 500. And I know that's a huge goal for you. There's going to be spectators. Everybody at Speedway loves Tony Kanaan. Just how cool is it going to be to get back there with fans? I mean, I can't wait, Bruce. Obviously, you remember, I, the reason that I came back to do this, it was because I didn't want to race without fans at the Speedway. So I can't wait. It's May already. So, um, you know, I'm pretty excited, especially with the car that we had here. I think we're going to have a very competitive car in, uh, at the Speedway. And also a lot of support here today, not only from Bryant Heating and Cooling, but also the American Legion's got some people here with you. How cool is it to represent them in this program? I mean, what an amazing group of people. I mean, what, a, what an amazing cause. I mean, the veterans that defend our country, you know, for their entire life. So uh, I'm really proud. Tomorrow we're going to rock their colors, and I hope uh, I can give them a better result than today. And also, how treacherous is the PJ1 in the turns? Is it still a handful? We saw several guys lose it tonight. It's terrible. Whoever created that and thought and said there was going to be more grip, they're going to have to, like, go back and think about what they did. But, yeah, it was terrible. One guy didn't fool was Tony Kanaan. He can still drive an IndyCar. Thank you for joining us. Thanks, mate. Thank you. Team Verizon driver Will Power of Team Penske. You had a fast Chevrolet in the early part of the race, but some issues dropped you at a 14th place finish in the Genesis 300 here at Texas Motor Speedway. How big a handful was it tonight? Uh, yeah, I definitely was loose. I think, you know, what got us was that first stint when we got caught by yellow. We had to, we pitted earlier, too early. Um, we had to, we ran out of fuel because we had a lambda sense issue and it was burning 10% more fuel than needed to. So, um, you know, I have to fix that tonight. And really, as you can see, it's a total track position race, totally. Um, nothing you can do when you're back there, nothing. And in a lot of ways, with Scott Dixon running up front for most of the race, it looked a little bit like an instant replay of last June when the race was held here, uh, you know, in front of no spectators. At least tonight we had fans. Yeah, nuts. Uh, <laughs> nuts. Yeah. It's nuts. We have a double header here, and it's obviously a very good track for him. So good luck trying to beat him tomorrow. But as far, though, as... After this, we go back to the Indianapolis Motor Speedway for the IndyCar Grand Prix on the road course. Then it's the 105th Indianapolis 500. So looking at that, the way you tested at the beginning of April, your confidence level for the Indy 500 this year? Uh, it's hard to say. Last year we rocked up, obviously. We're very disappointed. We've done a lot of work in the off-season, so we'll see. This uh, game can certainly surprise you, <laughs> even when you've done hard work. But, yep. Just got to keep trucking on, man. It's a long season. And oh, by the way, you've got a rookie teammate. First time he ever raced on an oval. A guy named Scott McLaughlin, Australian Supercars champion, three time, three times running, finished second to Scott Dixon. How cool is that? 
yeah, no, it's certainly a good run for him. And, uh, you know, I think obviously did a stellar job to end up up there. Team Verizon driver Will Power, thank you for joining us. You got it, man. Thank you. Sunday's Expel 375 started off looking like another Scott Dixon parade, but that changed after the final round of pit stops. With Dixon shuffled back in the field, it was 21-year-old Pato Award who was able to score his first career victory. The young driver from Monterey, Mexico, passed Team Penske's Joseph Newgarden for the win in turn three with 24 laps to go and went on to put Arrow McLaren SP in victory lane for the first time this season. It was McLaren's first IndyCar win since Johnny Rutherford swept the doubleheader at Atlanta in April 1979. We also talked to team co-owners Sam Schmidt and Rick Peterson in Victory Lane. Team president Taylor Keel gives his thoughts, followed by interviews with Dixon, who finished fourth the day after scoring IndyCar career win number 51. We also catch up with Sunday's third-place finisher Graham Rahal and fifth-place finisher Colton Herta. Joining us now on Pit Pass, Andy, is the winner of the Expel 375, a first-time winner, 21-year-old Pato Award of Mexico. Pato, I've been saying all along, you're going to win any day now. Well, today was the day. How does it finally feel to be an IndyCar winner? It's been awesome, man. These guys really deserve it, and I feel like it was a very well-earned win. Um, you know, everyone did a fantastic job in the pits. Uh, the car was fantastic, and... I did my job on the track. You know, that's that's why, you know, this is this is what we get paid to do. And I uh, couldn't be prouder of, uh, of a group of guys. And, uh, you know, these guys deserve it. They've been working so hard in the offseason. Uh, and it's great to get it over with. And we'll just try and rack up some more. To show you how important this victory means to you, you're carrying the trophy. That thing can't be light. How heavy is it? Dude, this trophy is badass. I feel like it's one of the best trophies that we get all year for the winner. So, um, I'm a proud carrier of this Texas trophy. <laughs> also, it was a hard-fought race, and you made the two things happen that were key. The pit stop on lap 187, in and out of the pits, in 7.5 seconds. How important was that? Uh, that helped me a lot at the end, uh, but I still had to get some, some moves done before, before we can actually take the win. But the strategy, of course, was to get out there right after the lap after Dixon and Ray Hall had pitted. It played out perfectly, and on lap 224, you were able to pass Newgarden for the lead in turn three. How did you size up that pass for the victory? As soon as they told me um, full fuel map and they let me go, I knew I had to get the job done, and I did. And how fitting is it for you to get your first career victory at Texas Motor Speedway, a state that you once lived in when you were a kid. You grew up in San Antonio in many ways, even though you're from Monterey, Mexico. Yeah, Texas is very close to my heart, um, and it's it's really cool to get this first win here, as well as, you know, our first our first race as a team was here in Texas, so it's really cool that we got our first win here. First McLaren win of any kind since Jensen Button won in 2012. Also the first McLaren IndyCar win since Johnny Rutherford set the doubleheader in 1979. How does it feel to be listed with those names? Uh, very special for sure. Hopefully I can rack up some more and, and uh, you know, add some more history to the books. Paddle Award, congratulations on your victory. Thank you for joining us on Pit Pass Indy. Thank you. McLaren SP team owner Sam Schmidt. Here we are in victory lane at Texas Motor Speedway 
We knew it was any day now Pato Award was going to get his first victory, and today happened to be the day. How exciting is it for you, and how satisfying is it to see this kid finally get a win in the IndyCar Series? This relationship with McLaren started a year ago, and uh, I tell you, Arrow, naming sponsor, been with us now for seven years. This kid is outstanding. We knew it would only be a matter of time, and now that uh, now he's felt it, maybe we can get some more. A couple of years ago, you rebuilt your team in many ways. You brought in McLaren as a partner. I believe this year we're really seeing the fruition of that partnership grow. There's got to be some exciting things ahead in the future for Aero McLaren SP Racing. Well, you saw it at Barber, and uh, the kid got the pole and was the fastest guy all day. These guys have worked so hard in the offseason. I think Felix has been an excellent addition uh, because he's brought a lot of knowledge and experience, and he's pushing Pato even though we're not seeing the results. So having Rick Peterson here, having Mike Long, having everybody from Arrow, uh, Views, Mission, Juan Gonzalez here. I mean, it's it couldn't happen at a better place because we have all of our major partners here. I wish Zach was here, but uh, uh, we'll get him at the next one. Now, next up, uh, could it be a championship season for Pato Award? He was in contention all the way to the last race of 2020. Why not 2021? Yeah, I mean, St. Pete was a... Something we want to forget, but I think this puts him in P3 in the points, and uh, we can hopefully go forward from there. We're real strong at the Speedway, real strong at the PP. We should be strong from here on out, so we're certainly looking forward to it. Not getting ahead of ourselves. We still have to execute. Team owner Sam Schmidt, congratulations on winning the XPEL 375, and good luck at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway for the 150 Indianapolis 500. Thanks, Bruce. Appreciate the coverage. Now we're with another one of the team owners of Aero McLaren SP Racing. It's Rick Peterson. Rick, you've been a loyal supporter of this program for a long time. You saw a lot of talent in your driver, Pato Award. The team re remade itself two years ago by bringing McLaren in as a partner. I think today we saw it all come together. How satisfying is that for you? Very satisfying. I, I'm actually surprised it took this long because Pato is a, a real talent. Uh, but we finally got it. I think the rest will come a lot easier. I think you got a photo. I think you have a winner's photo to take, but congratulations on the victory. Okay, thank you. Scott Dixon, a win in Saturday night and fourth place today in the XPEL 375. Not a bad weekend, but at times it looked like you had the class of the field in the Sunday race. How do you see the way it played out? Yeah, a little bit frustrating, right? But, you know, honestly, a good weekend for us. Uh, you know, big congrats to, to Pato. He drove a fantastic race there at the end. Um, honestly, we just, you know, it, it was the way it went, right? You know, we uh, we were the only one that wanted to lead and we had to save a bunch of fuel, which made it, you know, more difficult for us to push on uh, on the in laps, and then some of those guys caught the caution, which really helped them. So, uh, so be it. Good weekend for us. Uh, really happy for everybody on the PNC uh, number nine crew. We leave here leading the points, which is a great way to enter, you know, the month of May and going to the 500. Was the caution really the big moment that once you got shuffled back, you know, then there wasn't really a whole lot you could do uh, from that point? Yeah. You know, I kind of always sum up some of the guys I'm racing to, you know, so I know uh, Ray Alls had a pretty rough start to the season. I know he was going to be super aggressive and, and then the same with Herder behind me. So, you know, uh, it was more of just management and not being, you know, too silly and, and making a mistake and losing a bunch of points. Were you having to burn more fuel than you wanted at that point? Uh, when we were leading, we had to, yeah, because, you know, Graham led for a bit. 
and then he was just backing the field up too much and I was like it's gonna get dangerous here so you know uh, then you're gonna have about five people trying to lead so uh, definitely interesting race and interesting way to manage it I think you know uh, Honda did a fantastic job on fuel mileage obviously we didn't come away with the win uh, with Honda and HPD um, but that's uh, how it goes but you brought up a very good point about you're leading the points now and going into the Indianapolis Motor Speedway for the month of May with the road course race, then the 150 Indianapolis 500. How much momentum do you feel this team has for Indy? Yeah, it'd be interesting. I think uh, the other manufacturers definitely brought a lot of power this year. Uh, it's a sizable step, which is kind of interesting considering, you know, these uh, engines are pretty mature. So, you know, uh, we'll see what and how that rolls off. Um, you know, we've got the road course first. It's always a fun way to, to kind of lay into that and, and uh, have a good race there. So. Again, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll keep trying to do our best. We'll keep trying to make the car a bit better and, uh, you know, whether it's pit stops and strategy and everything. But, um, you know, looking forward to, to getting back to Indy. Scott Dixon, congratulations on your win Saturday night and your fourth place finish today at Texas Motor Speedway. Thanks, man. Cheers. Graham Rahal, back-to-back top five finishes here at Texas Motor Speedway. You wanted the victory, but still you're coming out here in pretty good shape points-wise. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, it was uh, it was a great weekend, you know, to get two uh, two solid points, uh, two two top fives, uh, was excellent for us. So, super proud of our team, our organization for the job that they did this weekend. Our cars are very fast, very competitive. Um, you know, the boys did a great job. So, feels nice to get the fleet cost and care machine up there. I think Honda did an excellent job too. Uh, today we came up just just short. You know, just went too loose the last two stints. Wish that wasn't the case, but that's racing, and uh, you know. Uh, move on to, uh, to Indy GP and the 500, and I know we'll have a great shot there. After you passed Scott Dixon for the lead, it seemed like at that point it was a matter of saving fuel, and then you let him get back ahead of you. How difficult would it have been to save fuel before the final caution? Yeah, it's going to be tough. Well, we would have made it for sure, but it would have just been that slow, kind of follow the leader until the last five laps you would have tried to give it your best effort. But uh yeah, I mean, you know, with Dixie and I both trying to control the pace, obviously that helps Pato, it helps Joseph, and it got them the win because obviously they could go a lap longer than, than both of us could. But uh, that's the way she goes, you know, that's racing again. And, uh, you know, I think we did we did an excellent job today, so I've got no regrets. I'd like to get a win, obviously. It's, uh, we've been so close. And, you know, today, honestly, when I took the lead, I thought this could be the one. But, uh, you know, she slipped away a little bit. How important is it to have the momentum heading to the Indianapolis Motor Speedway in the month of May? Well, it feels good because particularly coming off the test that we had in May, I mean, we feel good. So uh, we're looking forward to the opportunity ahead. Graham Rahal, nice job this weekend at Texas Motor Speedway. Thank you for joining us. Thanks. Colton Herta, it was a pretty hard weekend at Texas Motor Speedway. Saturday night race got off to a rough start, but you were able to bounce back Sunday in the Expel 375 of the fifth place finish. How important was that, especially after the way things went Saturday night? Uh, it was very important. We we didn't, you know, we didn't really put a foot wrong until we had those problems. Um, we had a great race car in, in both days and podium. We should have really um, podiumed in both races. That's what I felt like we had the pace of. Um, in second race, I was really happy to go 10th to 5th with, with what we're dealing with right now and obviously not the best conditions to pass in uh, and uh, yeah, so it, it was very difficult to pass and, and we did all of our passing in the pits and strategy wise, so great job by them uh, for letting me uh, or creating those opportunities in the pits and the strategy to, to open up those gaps to, to pass some people, um, but yeah, I think overall 
going to leave the weekend a little disappointed. Um, you know, 22nd and a fifth is not what we wanted, and it's not what the car was capable of. So a little bit frustrating, but we'll see how it goes in the next one. Oval uh, track-wise, how do you feel heading to the month of May at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway for the 105th Indianapolis 500? Different track layout, but it's still an oval setup. Yeah, I feel confident. Our, our, our car's been fast there, so I feel confident in our Speedway car, and, and um, you know, it's it seems like, like we had really good pace here, so I think, I hope it'll transfer to Indy, where I know we have good cars usually, so... Ready to get into this month of May, May, have a week off to kind of recover from everything, and then uh, really excited for this month of May, though. And we're standing outside Victory Lane at Texas Motor Speedway watching Pato Award celebrate his first career IndyCar win. You and him are former teammates. Your careers are parallel to each other. In a lot of ways, you're the two young guys that a lot of us are predicting great stardom from in the future. What's your thoughts seeing Pato finally get his first IndyCar win? I mean... It's, it's about time. He's been so close so many times. He really deserves it. So happy to see him finally win, and, and a good job by him and his team today. Colton heard a nice job this weekend at Texas Motor Speedway. We'll see you in the month of May at the Indianapolis 500. Thank you. In the world of racing, Penske means performance and winning. For good reason. Since 1966, Team Penske has won 44 national championships, 17 in IndyCar alone. And last year, Team Penske claimed its Indianapolis 500 record-extending 19th Indy 500 win with Joseph Newgarden, the latest driver, to win the famed race. Team Penske also won its second straight NASCAR Cup Series championship. In 2022, Penske was the first team in history to win both the IndyCar and the NASCAR Cup Series championships in the same season. Team Penske enters the 2024 NTT IndyCar Series season with 236 IndyCar wins, including 34 500-mile race victories. Those are results that are tough to top, but Penske's legendary reputation for quality and attention to detail makes a statement off the track, too. When you need a truck, whether for your business or for a household move, Penske Truck Rental has some of the cleanest, newest, and best-maintained vehicles on the road. And we make it easy with personalized support from our associates, flexible reservations, and access to the top technology. With quick pickup and drop-off at more than 2,500 locations across North America, our scale and know-how will keep you covered, all helping to ensure you get the right, reliable, fuel-efficient vehicle when and where you need it. On the highways, the raceways, and every pit stop in between, Penske keeps you moving forward. Gain ground with Penske. Get a quote today at PenskeTruckRental.com or for household rentals, download the Penske Truck Rental mobile app today. Our featured guest this week is Penske Entertainment CEO Mark Miles, who discusses the plans for 137,000 fans at this year's Indianapolis 500, making it the largest sporting event in the world since the COVID-19 pandemic began last year. We also discuss a variety of interesting topics, so please stick around for my interview with Mark Miles. Joining us now is the boss, Penske Entertainment CEO Mark Miles. Mark we're finally here. It's the month of May. 
I know there's been a lot of work involved to determine how many fans will get to go to the Indianapolis 500. You announced last week that it would be 40% or 135,000 fans. I know that's a number that uh, took a long time to, to get to, but now that it's here, what are the next steps? I know that you're getting the tickets ready to mail and fans will have them soon. How long of a process has this been? Well, in some ways it goes back to March of uh, 2020. Continuous learning, continuous uh, planning, thinking about all the possible contingencies and uh, and working with others, both healthcare professionals and public policy people and other sports. So it's it's been a very long process, but ultimately uh, we're okay with where we ended up. We think it's a responsible way forward. 135,000 fans for uh, the 500 in the grandstands is uh, about 40,000, sorry, about 40% of the venue's capacity. It's um, more than 50% of the grandstand seats. So we think it's a good crowd. And, uh, you know, as to next steps, it just now is everybody on our staff is in the implementation process, knowing, of course, that um, it's not just about the 500. We're uh, two weeks from today. We run the IndyCar Grand Prix there, and we open up uh, the day before that. So very, very intense work going on right now to be ready to go. Now, how big of a challenge has it been to determine of the ticket holders that already had seats, if it was more than the 137,000, how were they notified, the ones that won't be able to attend the race? How were they determined which ones were able to get tickets, which ones weren't? Like one of the things we, uh, we worked on last year, first we went to the, the, those who already had purchased tickets, for the most part back in, uh, after the race in 2019, and asked them what they wanted to do, what did they want to keep. Um, and... Uh, that number ended up being a reduction of about 50, 55,000. And that gave us the flexibility so that very few people who want to be there and have the number of seats that they wish to have aren't going to be happy. Now, how do you determine which groups sit together, which groups are spaced apart? I'm sure that's a pretty involved and complicated process. Yeah, it really is a manual process. Once you get the specific information from the customer about how many tickets they want, then you just have, our ticket office is unbelievable. They're doing a great job. They practiced a lot thinking that, that uh, two or three times last year that we were gonna have to implement a process like this. So um, they're ready to go, but it, it is very labor intensive and they're burning the midnight oil. And I'm sure that in a lot of ways, we all hoped there we would have 250,000 people at this year's race. You worked with the Indiana Department of Health, the Indiana Board of Health people, Marion County Board of Health. I know it was a very intricate puzzle or a maze to be able to work through. Was the number that you got pretty much the number that you had started off with? Because I think I had asked you last week about the number, and it, or it was Doug Bowles, and he said the number really hadn't changed much in the last couple of weeks. I think that's right. It was always going to be something around 50%. Uh, I, I, at least I believe that to be true. And so it was the details that, that uh, we worked on for the last several weeks. A lot of the public events 
off-track events have been canceled, postponed, or they'll be done virtually. And I know that there's an awful lot of other things that go into the Indianapolis 500 than just the on-track action. How big a disappointment is that for some of the things, such as the parade, the Hall of Fame induction, things of that nature, the fastest rookie luncheon? Three concerts that generally collectively get about 100,000 people on race day, on race weekend, and more. No, that, that all, we just can't wait to get back to when those events can be uh, back as part of uh, May um, and and help provide that fun factor that, uh, that everybody loves so much about the 500. Now, there's an interesting concept to this year's 150 Indianapolis 500, at least in the practice and qualifying days, and that's vaccinations, that you will have the ability for people to come in and get vaccinated going to the track. If you could explain that a little bit, how that will work. Yeah, well... I guess I'd step back one step first and and note that since April, uh, working with the state of Indiana, the Board of Health, and IU Health, um, we have been running vaccination programs out there. They call them vaccination clinics on a number of days. And, uh, you know, that's been terrific. At the same time, we've been working hard with the members of the teams, the people who are in the, the paddock to get them vaccinated. There's going to be vaccinating uh, after our second race at Texas on Sunday at the Texas Motor Speedway. As to um, this last idea, we, we, we decided uh, about two weeks ago to extend the, the Max Vax clinic that was otherwise going to end at the end of April into uh, May, uh, pretty much up until race weekend. Um, and that's going to be a drive through uh, much as it has been, except it'll be across the street in the parking lot for the IndyCar, where the IndyCar Series offices are. But in addition, getting to your question, uh, IU Health has a dozen or so uh, first aid stations that are built into the uh, the, the grandstands, uh, under the grandstands of the Speedway. And some of them will be available for walk-in without appointment. So fans who come to watch a practice uh, will be able to just go over and, and get themselves and their family, their friends vaccinated. So we're really excited about that. We want everybody in the state to get vaccinated, but we particularly want to emphasize the importance of it for to our fans for May. Do Indianapolis 500 ticket holders have to be vaccinated? No. If they are not vaccinated, what are some of the procedures they'll have to do on race day for admittance? There's no uh, distinction between people who are and who aren't. There are uh, so you go to the gate, you have your ticket, uh, you will be given a mask and hand sanitizer, and you'll be asked to wear the mask, whether you've been vaccinated or not. Other than that, the distinctions come into play when you're talking about the kind of secured area uh, that, that we think of as the paddock, and, and there there will be uh, uh, vaccinations required of some populations, vaccination, vaccinations or testing of others. And will there be temperature checks for admittance? Yes. Uh, everybody will be temp checked as they come in uh, into the into the uh, speedway. So even though it's 40% capacity, should fans expect to get to the track a little bit earlier just to go through the protocols? Yeah, well that's a helpful question. We, we, we always want people to get in as early as, as they can just to avoid backups at the gates. We think we're staffed appropriately and organized to get people through in a, a reasonable way. 
but uh, the earlier fans come in, the better. And as far, though, as to finally be able to have uh, Roger Penske, the new owner of the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, to have a host an Indianapolis 500 with spectators, even though it's not going to be 100%, you have to probably feel pretty good about him finally getting to see what the place looks like to have that race that he loves so much and a place that he loves dearly with spectators. Well, that's true. But I would just say I can't say enough about his leadership over the last uh, you know, 15, 16 months. It's just been steadfast and positive and forward-leaning. And uh, none of us, you know, this is not going to be the normal 500. It's going to be a great 500. I hope it will be a great race. We're glad fans can get back. Um, but, uh, you know, as much as I'll be delighted when we get to the checkered flag on May 30th, I'll be even more delighted to be thinking about the 106th. Now, moving on away from the Indianapolis 500, working for Roger Penske, I've known you since you joined the, the series back in 2012, and you were a hard worker then working for the Hallman and Company, but how do you describe the level of work and responsibility that it takes to work for Roger Penske? Well, everybody knows Roger believes and lives by the motto that um, efforts Effort equals results, and and nobody works harder than Roger, and that's really inspiring. So, um, our whole team is absolutely committed. We want to make the best of the opportunity for Roger and for our fans and for IMS and IndyCar. Um, so we work hard and we work a lot. Uh, we got a great team too, and and they, for the most part, an experienced team. So uh, the 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 thing that is satisfying is so many people care about the the speedway itself and IndyCar, it, it, even if they're not really fans. It matters so much to our city and state, and so um, we don't want to let anybody down. Is the one thing about Roger's leadership that the fact is he doesn't ask his employees to do any more than he doesn't already do, and he does an awful lot uh, in terms of the time it takes, the commitment the hours, the long hours, getting up early for meetings, getting home late after meetings, the fact that he is so committed, does that almost motivate everybody else that if the leader can do that, then I need to do it too? Absolutely. I was, that's really what I was trying to say, that nobody that I've ever met works harder than Roger. Um, and when you think about it, I know how much time on task he puts into looking after uh, the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, the IndyCar Series, Indianapolis uh, IMS Productions, and and we're the, we're probably we are the smallest part of his businesses, so um, it's just remarkable his capacity and his his uh, effort and and his leadership. When you consider his age, do you ever get concerned at the workload that he takes on? Uh, you know, Roger's Superman. He uh, has not. Um, uh, hit pause for a second he uh i haven't seen him really have to take a break you know i'm i'm a few years younger than he is and i want to keep up he's he's really remarkable in terms of his uh, strength and stamina and energy level and again that that's all very inspirational but key to this puzzle are two people that you installed 
Doug Bowles is president of the Indianapolis Motor Speedway and Jay Fry, the president of IndyCar. And in a lot of ways, uh, them working with yourself and Penske Corporation management, it seems like it's allowed them the chance to grow and do some things that they're allowed to do under that type of leadership. It's true for the whole team. Certainly Doug and, and Jay, Allison Melanchthon, who runs all of our marketing and communications and content. Um, it, 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 this, this is a very motivated group, a very talented group, and uh, it's been very frustrating, as, as it has been, I'm sure, for, all, for most organizations since March of 2020. But now people are beginning to see, uh, you know, the, the end of this so that things really can be normal. And we're in the live sports of, uh, uh, business. Uh, that, that's just so critically important. So everybody is just chomping at the bit, ready to take the big step this May and then, and then look at being really back for uh, 2022. And you were a key part of the Hallman & Company, uh, which previously owned the Indianapolis Motor Speedway IndyCar, the Indy 500. Tony George and his wife, Laura, are still in the paddock with Ed Carpenter Racing. And what's it like to kind of see them now in a different role? In a lot of ways, he appears much more relaxed and, and at peace. Well, I hope that's the case. It, I, I think it should be. Their, their family, you know, is responsible for um, the decades of, of growth and, the, and eventually the preservation of, of the traditions of the Indianapolis Motor Speedway and ultimately IndyCar. And, and they got it to the place where Roger could take it uh, for the, and his family could take it for the next decade. So they should feel very good about that. I, I know they do. And, uh, and hopefully that, that leaves them all personally in a really good place. Jimmy Johnson is now part of the series. He runs the street and road courses. Uh, Tony Kanan runs that car on the oval tracks. It really looks like Carvana, the team sponsor, has just, they're all in when it comes to IndyCar racing. And to bring a company of that stature and magnitude into the series, it's a new sponsor with a lot of promotion. And how big a help has that been? No, it's just fantastic. And, and not, I mean, hats off to Carvana. There's their engagement, their advertising is just fantastic. But the American Legion, another sponsor on the car, is doing the same thing. And so it's just a, a huge uh, burst of, of promotion, and uh, hopefully it'll be sustainable. Hopefully TK will have a good ride uh, in Texas, and, and the 48 car will uh, have a great year. Now, on March 13th, 2020, a lot of us thought when everything got shut down, how are teams going to keep their sponsors? How's the car, the field going to remain at 24? And it seems like, if anything, the field's gotten stronger and deeper in the sponsors. I don't know if you lost a sponsor at all over the offseason. How big of a surprise was that to you? And at any point prior to that, were you concerned that some people may say may get out because of the shutdown? I don't think anybody knew, you know, what the future was going to look like in March, mid-March of, of 2020. Uh, the, the world hasn't been through anything like this before. And so absolutely there, you know, whether it was team, team ownership, team sponsors, uh, our broadcast partner, uh, our own sponsors, 
uh, th there was just a, a ton of uncertainty. But from the very beginning of that, moving forward, a course was set and direction was given and answers were worked out. And um, I, I just think it proved that the IndyCar uh, paddock is incredibly resilient. And I think you're right. There's more cars uh, throughout the year this year, 23 to 25, I think, maybe 26 on some occasions. And we're at a pretty good number for the 500 with bumping uh, insured at this point. So, yeah, it, it would have, it might have sounded a little foolhardy to predict in March of 2020 where we are today uh, in early May of 2021. You're in the midst of a, negotiating a new TV contract, and the race, uh, the Firestone Grand Prix of St. Petersburg, delivered the largest ever rating for an IndyCar race on NBC other than the Indianapolis 500. How important was that coming at this stage to show the value of what your series is to a broadcast partner? It's terrific. It, w it was very helpful. Um, but, you know, whether it's NBC or other broadcasters, they're professionals and they have all the data and they look at everything and they look at it, at it over time. So, um, you know, NBC's uh, a great partner. They were terrific in working through the uncertainties and the, and the uh, challenges of, of the pandemic in 2020. They promote, I saw some of their promotions with, in the Derby uh, telecast today, looking forward to the 500 and um, you know they they believe in our racing and they believe in the future of IndyCar and and they've been a big part of our growth obviously you're doing your due diligence talking to other prospective partners about a new broadcast package when do you hope to have that finalized early summer is kind of our target at this point um, so hopefully uh, we can know where we are in the summer so that and some other key announcements will uh, be important to our continuity and our ongoing um, partnerships. Are you committed to having a better package than what you've had with NBC, which was a better package than what you had before? Yeah, uh, we're not looking to take any steps backwards. We think a ton about programming and exposure and promotion. We think about all the platforms that a partner um, needs to be able to bring to bear. In the case of NBC, that's network and cable, even if it's not SN, and uh, their streaming platform, Peacock. Um, so all that matters and how they'll promote and rights fees, all those things are part of the discussion. And how important is a streaming platform in the next TV deal? You mentioned Peacock as part of NBC. Uh, the other networks have their own streaming platforms also, or even bringing in another streaming platform such as an Amazon or Netflix or something like that? So there's no question that, you know, some form of streaming is the future um, for live sports. It's just a question of the, the, uh, the pace of change. And, it, and so our arrangements this time around uh, for the next few years need to be very thoughtful in terms of streaming. There aren't a lot of sports where they're principal source of exposure is uh, live streaming of the sport, but it's coming. 
and we uh, we want to be uh, on on the front edge of that. So we're ready when as as the lines cross and, and streaming platforms become more and more important. And for maybe some of our listeners who don't know some of your background, you were responsible in bringing the Pan-American Games to Indianapolis in 1987. You were the head of the Association of Tour Professionals and Professional Tennis, and you also led the committee that brought the Super Bowl to Indianapolis back in 2011-2012. How did all of those jobs prepare you for what you're doing now? Well, uh, it was a sort of Forrest Gump-like um, career, if it's a career. But the sum of all that included working on, on big events, which in some ways may have been preparation for the Indianapolis 500-mile race, and running a league. So the ATP is men's professional tennis worldwide. And while... You know, strings and balls aren't the same as uh, engines and wishbones. Um, many of the of the skill sets, I think, and the and the requirements are very similar. Making a schedule, making rules, selling television rights, um, selling sponsorship, dealing with stakeholders, some of whom have different uh, perspectives. Um, so there's a. I, I think my 15 years running the men's tennis uh, circuit was helpful in in uh, in preparing for the IndyCar series. And going back even to the Pan American Games, I believe you were probably the only man that I actually know that actually had meetings with Fidel Castro. If you could, there aren't a whole lot of people in the United States that can ever say that. What was that like? Was it intimidating? Uh, it, it had to be one of the more interesting things you've ever been able to do in your life. Yeah, not something I ever thought about uh, putting on my wish list. But what happened was Indianapolis competed against Havana, Cuba for the right to host the, the 1987 Pan American Games. Indy won, and Fidel announced a boycott. So uh, ultimately, uh, we had three different three-hour meetings with him after the first one. Um, we understood the basis on which he might be willing to uh, reverse his thinking and make sure Cuba participated. By the second meeting, we could announce that that was going to happen. These were all late-night meetings that lasted um, a, a fair amount of time. And my, my thinking, my reaction to him, I remember being very different the first time, the second time, the third time. Uh, but, of course, they were fascinating and, uh, importantly, to the Pan American Games in Indianapolis. Ultimately, the Cubans were the best competition for the U.S. athletes and were very important to the success of the game. The opening ceremonies were held at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. At that time, even in your wildest imaginations, did you ever think, I'm going to run this place one day? <laughs> Hardly. <laughs> you know, we didn't end up, we didn't have the, uh, the, the, an ideal place. Like the Summer Olympic Games, the Pan American Games expectation, is a big soccer stadium, right? Um, or a football stadium, you can put a track inside. That's kind of the norm, and Indianapolis didn't have that. So we had to improvise, and um, when we looked around and we aspired to have a big crowd, the Indianapolis Motor Speedway seemed like the best uh, option. We went to see um, Mary Holman, 
um, and Tony, and I was not alone, others as well, and they said, of course, when we made the request. And then we got Disney involved, and it was a very colorful, huge show, and it was a fitting way to kick off uh, 17 days of competition and a million fans attending and what became a big event for our city. And one of the great accomplishments of your life was to bring the Super Bowl to Indianapolis, and I know that there's been other attempts to try to convince the NFL to bring the Super Bowl back to Indianapolis. Do you see that happening someday soon, or is it still a little bit with all the new stadiums that are being built, some of the megalopolis-type stadiums that we see that are built in Las Vegas and and Los Angeles and some of the other places that it will be a little difficult to try to get the Super Bowl back? No, I think it's very difficult and unlikely in the next, you know, in the short term. The, the league is pretty committed to kind of going back to rotation for the for their, like, resort cities in Southern Cal and um, in Texas and uh, New Orleans and, um, and uh, North Florida. I'm sorry, South Florida. Uh, with the possibility of new buildings, new league uh, buildings also uh, having the opportunity. So, you know, I don't think we're going to build a new uh, Lucas Oil Stadium in Indianapolis real soon. So I think we, we probably had our moment in the sun for now, and it, it may be a while before that opportunity presents itself again. But to know that the NFL, the media, the spectators, the sponsors all raved about how well that Super Bowl was run, that has to go down as one of the most satisfying things of your career. Yeah, it was terrific. Um, in the end, there were more people who wanted to volunteer than we could deploy. 12,000 people wanted to be part of it. We, we actually could give uh, responsibilities to 8,000 people. The city had uh, a million people in the Super Bowl Village for the 10 days before the event. Most of them were Hoosiers partaking in a way that they couldn't because most local folks can't actually go to the Super Bowl game. Uh, we got unbelievably fortunate to have sensational weather by February standards in Indianapolis and uh, and the, the city and, and the people of Indianapolis showed itself themselves very well. And what was even more terrific is the New England Patriots got beaten that Super Bowl. <laughs> <laughs> well, there are a lot of people in Indianapolis who felt that way. Uh, but that venue's a fantastic place. Indianapolis and the state of Indiana showed how important they are in running big events with March Madness, every game being played within the state of Indiana. Also, the college football championship game will be played at Lucas Oil Stadium. So there's still a lot of opportunity for big events to be held in the city of Indianapolis. Listen, Indianapolis, you know, initially in amateur sports and subsequently in the world of sports, I really do believe is the sports capital of the country. So, of course, you have the Pacers and the Colts and the Speedway. But pre-COVID, in a 14-month period, Indianapolis had had been slated to host the NBA All-Star Game, the NCAA Final Four, sorry, before that, the Big Ten Basketball Tournament, then the NCAA Final Four, then um, the uh, Big Ten Football Championship Game, which is still going to have, then the National College Football Championship Game. Nobody does that in, in a year. It, it, it is, uh, and that's not going away. So the All-Star Game got 
postpone and we don't have it till I think 24. But all the rest of those events are still on the schedule for as originally scheduled. And of course, we traded up uh, and went just from the final four up to the whole of, of March Madness, which nobody could have imagined. So no, Indy is not going backwards. Indy has a great future to continue to be uh, competitive and a great host for the major events that are available. And of course, the greatest sporting event of all is the Indianapolis 500, the cornerstone sporting event. It's really one of the things to put that city on the map. So you have to feel that the success and the history of being able to put on the world's greatest race for that long is one of the keys that's kind of helped turn Indianapolis into the city that it is today. Absolutely. You know, it, it was the thing that the city was known for before we developed a broader sports uh, uh, strategy. Um, and, and frankly, it was the only thing we had. I mean, we didn't have a down, another, you know, center city downtown sports venue. We didn't have much of a convention center. We didn't have a dome stadium or a Lucas Oil. Um, so it, it really, the, this Indianapolis Motor Speedway was the sports identity of the city and continues to be that, but we're in good company now with so many other options for our folks. Mark Miles, Penske Entertainment CEO. It's always fascinating talking to you, and thank you for joining us today. Thanks, Bruce. A pleasure. And that puts a checkered flag on this episode of Pit Pass Indy. We want to thank all of our guests for joining us today. And now it's off to the 105th Indianapolis 500 as the month of May is finally here. This has been a production of Evergreen Podcast. A special thanks to our production team. Executive producers are Bridget Coyne and Gerardo Orlando. Recordings and edits were done by me, Bruce Martin, and final mixing was done by Dave Douglas. Until next time, be sure to keep it out of the wall.